morning, everybody. Welcome back. Let's uh, find our places, and uh, we'll get started this morning. What a, what a great opportunity to be together, and I'm so thankful that, that you came out. I, um, I was thinking about what Nick said, and, you know, we've had beautiful weather all winter long. We had snow last night. That was weird. But think about it. I mean, it, it really was beautiful. I mean, God gave us a very beautiful morning, and if not by the end of today... By tomorrow, it'll all be gone again. It'll be warm again. It'll be all right. I mean, I know we're going to talk about suffering and stuff like that, okay? I mean, but this ain't suffering. I mean, come on. We got central heat and air. I mean, it's awesome. So uh, I'm really glad that you're here. Um, We are going to start a new Bible study series. And if you happen to be new to First Baptist Church, um, this is what we do. We pick books of the Bible, and we study them systematically. And we go verse by verse through the scripture, and we do our best to give you the sense of an understanding of what it's all about so that the Holy Spirit can work in your life and in your heart and give you the application so that you can take God's word and you can apply it to your life. That's what we believe God would have us to do, and that's what we do regularly around here. So um, if you're here for the first time, um, what a great opportunity. You're getting in on day number one of a brand new Bible study series. So we're going to go through the short little book of First Peter near the end of your Bible. You might want to find that. And uh, the plan is to spend nine weeks together to go through this book. It's, it's an unbelievable study, and we could easily spend much more than that. But uh, we'll just take nine, and we'll walk through this. Um, I hope you enjoy it. Let me get started right away by just saying... Um, some introductory statements about the book. We're going to spend a little time just giving you an overview and an understanding of where we're going, and then this will serve kind of as a foundation for everything we do moving forward. Uh, 1 Peter is referred to as a general epistle. It's referred to as a general epistle. Now, that would be in contrast to what we might call the Pauline epistles, the epistles written by Paul, or the church epistles, which are, again, another way of saying the ones that Paul wrote specifically to a church or specifically to an individual Christian. Um, The general epistles are found at the end of your New Testament. Typically, you go from the book of Hebrews to the book of Jude. And uh, the human author, of course, is Simon Peter. Uh, Verse number one of chapter number one, he introduced himself, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Peter was one of the 12. Together with James and John, he was one of the inner circle, the big three, of the twelve, he was had the privilege of being able to accompany the Lord Jesus in some opportunities of ministry that the other nine didn't always have the opportunity to participate in. Uh, so he was one of the twelve Jewish apostles that traveled with the Lord Jesus Christ. So as such, Peter is a Jewish Bible teacher. He's a Jewish Bible teacher. His ministry post-resurrection is specifically to the Jewish people. He was sent and called to minister to those people who were of a Jewish background, unlike Paul, who was specifically called to go to minister to the Gentile peoples. And we see that in Galatians chapter 2 and verses 7 through 9, where it says, But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision, this is Paul writing, the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, For he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, which would be just another name for Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, 
perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. So Peter and James and John and their epistles even, what you're going to find is, is that in their, these epistles, certainly there's going to be a church age application. We'll see that as we go. But there is also going to be a Jewish flavor to it because Peter, James, and John had the specific ministry to reach out to this group called the circumcision, the nation of Israel, the, the people of the Hebrew background. And so, um, but Paul, on the other hand, was called specifically to reach out to the Gentile peoples, although, of course, there was overlap. He reached out to Jews as well, but his primary emphasis was to go to what would be referred to as the heathen or the Gentiles. Clearly, there was a separation. There was a differentiation in the ministries of those two men, Peter and Paul, as we saw in Galatians chapter 2. In fact, if you look with me in 1 Peter chapter 1, it starts off by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Normally we would read something like that and we would be like, okay, whatever, he traveled to those places. And we would just pass it by and not give it a lot of thought. But I just want to point out to you that these specific places are significant. If you took the time to do a lot of Bible study, what you'd come across is eventually you'd go back to Acts chapter 16. And in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 to 9, it's the story where Paul and his guys, they're traveling and they're doing their ministry and they're working their way through the landmass that we now know as Turkey. And they're coming up to the northwestern portion of Turkey and they're just praying that God would lead them into the next area that they would want to go. And this is the area where the Bible says that the Holy Spirit forbade them to go into certain regions. And of the regions that it says the Holy Spirit forbade them to go, there was Asia, a place called Mysia, a place called Bithynia. Well, we just read about Asia and Bithynia, right? It's very interesting that the Holy Spirit forbade Paul to go into these areas. And then later we find that Peter, in fact, writes his letters to the people in these areas. Peter also included Galatia. Well, we just read in Galatians chapter 2 that there was a little bit of a conflict. And Paul and Barnabas had to square away some things, kind of get the ground rules set up between Peter and, I mean, yeah, Peter and James and John. And they kind of agreed together that, hey, we're going to have a Jewish audience and you guys are going to have a Gentile audience. So in other words, when they were all together ministering, Peter and Paul, in the same area of Galatia, you found that there was some tension. And if you studied more in the book of Galatians, you'd find that there was actually a time where Paul kind of had to rebuke Peter because he was acting like a Gentile around the Gentiles and then he withdrew and acted like the Jews around the Jews and he was kind of a hypocrite. And so there was this kind of a weird tension going on. So Galatia was proving ground that the two of these guys probably need not minister in the same place. Does that mean one was necessarily wrong? Well, no. So what we find is later on, Paul's direction was then sent to Macedonia, as we have what we refer to as the Macedonian call. And Paul goes westward into the Balkan Peninsula that way. And what we find is Peter was, why did, why did the Holy Spirit forbid Paul to go to that area? Well, Peter was already there. And that's what we see in this book. So they have very different emphases in their ministries as far as the audience is concerned. Peter writes this letter at roughly 60 AD. That's roughly 30, 25 to 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you were to flip to the end of 2 Peter chapter 3 and verses 15 and 16, you'll find that Peter is aware of what Paul is doing, and he refers to the writings of Paul as Scripture. This is the one place in the Bible where Paul's writings within the context of the Bible 
are defined as actual. Peter recognized Paul's writings as being inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the audience of 1 Peter is going to be a mixed audience. What we're going to see is, is that while there is a definite Jewish flavor throughout this letter, really it definitely includes the Gentiles. And we see that from what I read in verse number 1. It says, Peter, to the strangers scattered throughout. Now, if you took the time to do all the Bible study, and we're not doing that this morning, but you can do this, the, the way that God uses the word stranger, okay, is simply to mean foreigners. And the overwhelming majority of uses, not 100%, but 99% maybe, I mean, overwhelming majority of usages of the word stranger is referring to Gentiles. Very rarely would ever refer to the Jews. But the idea would be somebody who is living in a land that is not their own are considered strangers. And so what we're not talking about for an audience of 1 Peter, some people think that 1 Peter is written solely to the Jewish diaspora, the, the scattering of the Jews among the other nations. But that's really not the audience that Peter has. Peter is writing to more likely, the Gentile proselytes to Judaism. So he still has a Jewish flavor in his ministry, but he's talking to these strangers who overwhelmingly are referred to as Gentiles. So there's without question a Gentile audience, but a Gentile audience who has already kind of, you know, tipped their cap towards Judaism. And so as a result, in your notes I wrote that this is written, like I said, about 30 years after the resurrection. So any Jews that are referred to are actually saved, just like the Gentiles are saved, by grace through faith in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So without question, as we jump into the letter of 1 Peter, there is a clear application to Christians in the church age. Look in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 2. It says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit and unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So he says he's writing to these strangers scattered throughout these regions, and then he calls them elect, chosen of God. And it's interesting because we've studied this in the past in this church, but if you weren't around, that term elect is used very frequently of the nation of Israel. But it's also used in the New Testament for Christian believers. So interestingly, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses the term elect, which has an application to Israel, but also has an application to church-age believers. Now, there's a whole group of people who take this idea of being elect or chosen of God to an extreme that goes beyond the biblical limits. And they believe in things like unconditional election. But 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 2 makes it very clear that this election that God is referring to absolutely is conditional. It's not unconditional. So the Calvinists got it wrong because it says that they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That means that God who is outside of time knew what you were going to choose to do of your own free will. So elect according to the foreknowledge still keeps free will in play. Do you see that? It's not like God has just overwhelmed you with his will and grace, and you couldn't say no if you wanted to, like some people would teach. No, you are elect only because God knew that you would choose him of your own free will. How exactly did that happen? Well, it happened through sanctification of the Spirit. Well, that's your salvation. 
You're sanctified by the Holy Spirit of God the moment that you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So through the act of you choosing to believe on Jesus Christ, which God knew about from beforehand, he chose you. It's just very simple. It's not hard to understand. And then it goes on in that verse to say, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's your purpose in life is to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to live a sanctified life, a holy life set apart unto his service. That's what that's all about. And so, and if you're interested, if you're a Bible student, I would like for you at least, just to at least notice that in verse number two, we have a reference to the Trinity. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctification of the Spirit and the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The word Trinity never really appears in your Bible, but we see them referred to together over and over and over again. This is just another place. So Peter writes this letter after Acts chapter 15, which is the time when the leaders of the church in Jerusalem and apostles meet with Paul and Barnabas and they discuss the details of New Testament salvation being by grace through faith alone without any connection to the law of Moses anymore. This letter is written after Galatians 2 that we referred to already, where again it was an issue of the law of Moses and hanging out with Gentiles as being unclean or any of those kind of things. So doctrinally what we're going to find in 1 Peter is a very, very clear church age application although it's going to have some Jewish flavor to it. And what it's going to have is it's going to have a view towards the future tribulation. And so while we're going through this, I'll point out some of the Jewish flavors as we see it, but really we're going to focus on what the application needs to be, and that is the church age application, directly profitable for us today, and I would say specifically profitable for us today, as we live in the very last days of the church age, ever anticipating the soon return of the Lord in the rapture, ever anticipating that immediately after that is the ushering in of the tribulation, which kind of is the focus of the general epistles. It's the transitional time working out of the church age and pointing towards the coming time of tribulation. So we find in 1 Peter a theme. The theme of 1 Peter is Christian suffering. This is going to be very obvious as we walk through this book. Suffering is mentioned throughout this book. And anybody who studies 1 Peter, they all come to the agreement that the theme of 1 Peter is Christian suffering. It is in every single chapter. There are references without end. You'll find them over and over again. We'll get to one this morning. And so that's a widely accepted understanding of 1 Peter. But what many fail to notice when they study 1 Peter is that there is an equal emphasis given to glory an equal emphasis given to glory. So if you go on your Bible program and you type in suffer and put an asterisk at the end and search for that in First Peter, what you'll find is that some form of the word suffer shows up 15 times. And then you go for glory or glorify or glorification and those kind of things, and you will find that it appears 16 times. So virtually the same amount of times throughout the book. This is only five short chapters. We see that they're related to one another, and we'll see it this morning. So it's going to give to us the, what I consider the actual theme or the more complete rendering of the theme is actually the title I gave to our series. It's the title I gave to this first message, and that is Suffering, the Path to Glory. Suffering becomes the path that God will use to receive glory. Now, that doesn't make us really happy, but you'll find as we go through this, hopefully, that it will encourage and strengthen you because the truth is we all suffer at times. 
Let's talk for a minute about God's glory. God's glory is the ultimate purpose of God in two main things. One is creation. Suffering is, I mean, excuse me, God's glory is the ultimate purpose of God in creation. Why? It's, it's God's creative power. Okay, in other words, God is creating something out of nothing. And when God is able to just speak and things are created out of nothing, well, that manifests his greatness. That puts his power on display. That brings glory to him because he's the only one that could possibly do that. And so he's glorified in creation, but he's also glorified in redemption. Because in redemption, God takes something that is miserably broken, like our lives, and he redeems us and makes us whole. So the, the creative work of God is making something out of nothing. The redemptive work of God is kind of the proverbial making lemonade out of lemons. And that's what he does in our life. And only God could possibly do that. And so that's what we're going to see as we go through these things. These are the actions that put God on display. And that really is what glory means. So let me ask you a question. Do you want to glorify God in your life? Now, if you're a younger believer and you don't have a lot of experience walking with the Lord or you don't know a lot about the Bible yet, um, the odds are, if I ask the question, do you want to glorify God in your life, your honest answer might be, well, I don't know. (laughs) I guess I'm supposed to, but I'm not sure I know exactly what that means. That's fair. But for a lot of us that have been saved a long time and we've spent time in the Bible and we know a little bit what the Lord is all about, If I ask you that question, I think your honest answer would be, well, yeah, of course. I want to glorify God in my life. What exactly does that mean? Well, for that to happen, that means that God has to do things that manifest his power. God has to do things that put his life on display in and through our lives. You tracking with me? That means that there has to be things that happen in our lives that are in the category of lemons, okay? So that God can take the lemons and make lemonade. God is going to redeem things that are going on in your life in order to put his power and presence on full display for the world to see. And when that happens, he receives glory. Now, the way that he does that, as revealed over and over and over throughout the scriptures and focused so much in this book is by allowing you to suffer. He loves you enough to allow you to suffer. And that's a hard thing for us to hear sometimes. But what he's looking for is this, to see if you'll respond right while you're in the midst of it. Because if you will respond properly in the midst of trials and tribulation and difficulty, what happens is you develop humility in your life. And, and the Bible says that God resists the proud. He gives grace unto the humble. That's another key that we'll see in this little book. And we glorify God because he changes us. It's, it's like the story of Job in the Old Testament. So similar to a lot of us who, let me ask you this. How many of you honestly would say, it would probably do me good if I could develop more patience in my life. A lot of people, okay, you know where I'm going with this. So how many of you, don't raise your hand on this one, how many of you would say, I have actually asked God to help me be a more patient person? There's some giggles. Because you know what happens 
when you pray for patience, right? God doesn't sprinkle the, the, the magic patient dust on you. God puts you in tough times that forces you to exercise patience so that patience grows in your life. So if you're praying for patience, buckle up, Jack, <laughs> right? You're in for a wild ride. And so some of you are thinking, I'm good without patience. Okay, so <laughs> similarly, if you sincerely say, Lord, be glorified in me, buckle up. I mean, brace for impact. Because what's going to happen is some trials and difficulties are going to come into your life so that God can be glorified as you respond properly through the difficulties that you have. So 1 Peter is going to give for us the deeper understanding of how to handle these times of suffering and how to keep our perspective and how to keep our Christian testimony in the midst of all those things. Okay, that's all by way of introduction. Let's jump into our text starting in verse number three. The first point that we have is the promise of glory. Verses three through five. I turned the page. Okay, verses three through five. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So he starts out by saying, Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy... And mercy, we understand, is is God being kind to us, not judging us where we deserve judgment. And it says that he has begotten us again. Well, sometimes we use the term born again. Begotten is just past tense of born. You go through the genealogies, somebody begat somebody. Begotten is past tense of begat, okay? And so he has begotten us Well, we're already born once. Again, of course, a spiritual birth. We're talking about Christian people. We're talking about people who have eternal life. What has he begotten us again unto? Well, unto a lively hope. And so God has given us hope. And he's given us a hope that is alive. It's living. It's active in our lives. So I want to give you the definition of hope. Because some of you may not be aware how the Bible uses the term. We use the term, hey, are you going to go here or there? Are you going to get a raise at work? Well, I hope so. I don't know. Well, that's not how the Bible uses the word hope. The Bible uses the word hope this way. The definition of hope is expectation of a certain future event. God promises something is going to happen in the future, but it hasn't happened yet. But he's told you about it in his word. You now have hope of that event. The second coming of Jesus Christ. The rapture of the church. Eternal rewards. You have have your hope in the fact Not like, boy, I hope that's going to happen. No, it's going to happen. God said it's going to happen. It's certain that it's going to happen. It just hadn't happened yet. It's still future. So he's begotten us again so that our hope is alive and well and active for this certain future event. Well, what is that certain future event? Well, it's in verse number four. To an inheritance. That's the thing that's certain. The future of our life, an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. That's your heavenly reward. Praise God. It's your internal inheritance. 
Titus uses the same kind of language in chapter 3 and verse number 7, that being justified by his grace, there's your salvation, we should be made heirs, inheritance, heirs together, right, according to the hope of something certain in future, eternal life. Okay, how does all that take place? What is the vehicle that makes all that happen? Well, back at the end of verse number 3, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, that's Easter. Okay, if you were with us last week, that was our message last week. The whole idea is this present world system is broken, but God has a perfect coming kingdom. And the only way we get from here to there is because of what Jesus Christ did when he rose from the grave. So because of what he did, he made available to us the ability to get in on all those things. It's an amazing thing. John chapter 14. I love this passage of scripture, familiar to many, starting in verse number one. Let not your heart be troubled. Listen, we're going to be talking about suffering and difficulty. What's Jesus' word to you? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. So that's his great promise of your eternal rewards, your incorruptible inheritance. If you believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, you have an eternal inheritance. Amen. Praise the Lord. So let's talk a little bit about our inheritance. It is incorruptible. That's what it says in 1 Peter, an inheritance incorruptible. Well, I'm going to compare it to what would be considered a corruptible inheritance. James chapter 5, 1 through 3. Go to now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches, notice, are corrupted. And your garments, notice, are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you. So whatever it is that, isn't it funny? I mean, we're all about money and gold and jewelry and clothing and wealth and all this stuff. And God reminds us, those are things that maybe can serve you for a little bit, but they're all corruptible. In Jesus Christ, you have an inheritance that's incorruptible. So in Matthew 6, starting in verse 19, he warns us, he says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt. See that? And where thieves break through and steal. But rather, right, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so a biblical principle for Christian believers is to invest in eternal things. Your faithful financial giving, your faithful giving of your time, your resources, these are investments in eternal things. This lays up for you a treasure that is incorruptible. You're putting it into a bank account, a savings retirement account, if you want to consider it that way, that will never disappear. It will never fade away. It'll never be corrupted. That's what he wants for us to do. That's your inheritance. Man, this is incredible because he is literally working this promise of glory in our lives. And it's guaranteed because in verse 5 it says, who are kept by the power of God. That's your eternal security. 
I mean, not only has God mercifully given to all of us the gift of eternal life, he guarantees that you're going to receive it because he's the one who keeps it. You're not the one who keeps it. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Man, Paul says, I've been going through some tough times, but I'm not worried about it, because at the end of the day, God is keeping the treasure that I put my faith and trust in. Man, if it was up to us to just believe on Jesus for salvation and then live well enough to not lose it, can I say with all due respect that not one of us would succeed? Every one of us would blow it. Every one of us would lose it. Losing your salvation is a perversion of Bible truth, and the churches that might teach that, I'm not saying that they're not born again. I'm saying that they don't understand the biblical concept of what salvation really is, and you're regenerated as a new creature born into God's family as a total gift. You did nothing to get it. You do nothing to keep it. Man, it is a promise of glory. Hallelujah. It's exactly what he wants for us. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In whom also you trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance. There's the inheritance. Until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. So what you see is, again, all these themes running through. You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. His Holy Spirit gives birth to your previously dead human spirit. He seals you with this promise that without question, he is going to absolutely come back and get you and bring you home until the full redemption of the purchased possession. That is a wonderful promise. That's the promise of glory. Well, the second point that we're going to look at is the purpose of suffering. The purpose of suffering. Look back in 1 Peter. We'll start in verse number 6. Wherein you greatly rejoice. By the way, hallelujah, greatly rejoice in all that stuff we just covered, right? Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love, in whom, though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. So if glory is where we're going, suffering's how we get there. Suffering's how we get there. So Nick kind of referred to it in his introduction positionally, right, and this is in your notes, you get to go to heaven, glory, right? Why? Because Jesus suffered for you. Jesus suffered for you, so suffering is the path to glory. We're just the benefactors, right? Wherein we greatly rejoice, verse number six. That's something you can get excited about, but practically, okay, that's what he did the moment we placed our faith in him. That's awesome, but we still are living our lives day to day. I put my faith and trust in Christ over 33 years ago. I'm, you know, I'm still grinding it out here on earth just like you. So practically, in your notes here, you will glorify God in your life now when you suffer 
and respond rightly. Because the things come into our lives that are challenges and difficulties, but God's looking to see if you will allow him to work through it and put his power and majesty on display. That's verse 6, the second part. Though now for a season, and that season might be your entire earthly life, I don't know, if need be, ye are in heaviness. You ever feel that way? Through manifold, multiplied temptations. So God will use suffering and tough circumstances to test your faith. And that's what we see in verse number 7, that the trial of your faith, right, being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, it says. So your faith is compared to gold and the refining process of the fire. But faith is greater than gold because we saw earlier that gold is something that is an inheritance that is corruptible. But your faith is something that's going to last forever. And so faith is greater than gold, right? Because it perishes, it rusts. But there's the refining process, and you know the picture. You put the gold in the pot, and they turn up the heat, and, and, it, and it melts, and it liquefies, and all the impurities come to the top, and, and the person working the gold skims all the impurities off the top, and what's left is pure gold. That's the picture God's painting for you in your faith. You have faith, but as we're working it out in our daily lives, there's impurities. There's things that are just, you know, getting in your way. And so the way God is going to refine your faith to get to know him better and to be, have a, a purer version of your faith is to turn up the heat a little bit and a little more and a little more. And what happens is, the, when that happens, when the, you know it works this way, when the difficulties come in your life, what happens? The impurities of your life, the things that maybe you're a little embarrassed about, they rise to the surface, don't they? They kind of get on full display so other people can see it sometimes, doesn't it? But you know what the Lord does? He just skims it off the top, and what's left is pure. That's the picture he's trying to paint. That's, that's what he's trying to do. He's going to use the suffering to test your faith. But it's kind of up to you on how you respond, right? Because that's what it says in verse number 7, that it being much more precious than gold to perish, though it be tried with fire, notice, might be found unto praise and honor and glory. I mean, difficult times come into your life, and if you just tank and you just scream and complain and are mad and live in the middle of all that garbage and never really trust the Lord through it, well, I mean, you didn't really glorify the Lord. It's not really unto his praise and honor and glory because you didn't respond right. I mean, this is a test for you. We don't love these tests. I mean, who loves tests? But it depends upon our response. So that becomes the purpose of the Christian suffering, to test your faith with the expectation that you'll respond well and give God praise and honor and glory, right? The devil, he just wants to use the difficulties to beat you down and make you, you know, curse God and, you know, like, like Job. And so Job in Job 13, 15 says the right response. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That, it's all in your attitude. So, you know, eternity, man, that's going to be awesome. But now, <laughs> not so much. But a Christian has the ability 
even in the midst of the hard times, to have this thing called joy. And, and, and I want to explain that a little bit to you because maybe that's a little confusing to you because even in the midst of heaviness and manifold temptations, you can rejoice and have joy. And you're thinking, that just seems weird to me because I don't like it when bad things happen. Well, who does? I mean, join the club. Nobody likes it. Well, what I want to do for you is I want to just differentiate. There is a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is not joy, and joy is not happiness. How do I know that? They're spelled different. They're different. They're different words. They mean different things. This is deep. In your notes, happiness comes from favorable circumstances, but joy comes from a favorable destiny. You can have bad circumstances, but you know you still have a lively hope. So you can still have your joy, even though, honestly and fairly so, I'm very unhappy in the midst of my circumstances. I don't like them one bit. Nevertheless, I won't lose faith. I will trust the Lord. I will do all I know to do to try and respond in a way that's pleasing to him. Well, when I do that, I can have joy regardless of the circumstances. That's a demonstration of your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a demonstration of your faith in him. And by the way, in this context, it is loving somebody you've never seen physically yet. It's having faith in somebody you've never seen physically, right? And that's what it says. So in verse 8, whom, whom having not seen you love, though you now see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse number 7, faith is defined as the opposite of sight. If you can see it, it doesn't require faith, right? And so when people say seeing is believing, no, not really. Seeing is not believing. Seeing is seeing. Believing is believing. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So God, your faith is way more precious than gold, and God wants your faith to be even more pure, and he wants you to please him even more, and you have to exercise faith to be able to do that. Back in the days of the disciples, you know Thomas, right? The guy who was always doubting and always wanted stuff proven to him. John 20, 29, Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed Okay, whatever, but, he says, blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. That's what I'm really looking for. I'm looking for somebody who has genuine faith. You say you believe me now, but I already proved it to you. What kind of faith is that? No, people that have never seen me and still believe. By the way, church, that's us. That's all of us. So in your notes, God is pleased when by faith you choose to love him and you choose to rejoice in him. You haven't had the physical proof of it yet. Everything you know about whether your response is the right response comes solely from the fact that God's word says it. And you say, I'm believing that. I'm going to believe that. And I'm going to act according to the truth of God's word, even though I've never seen it yet. Right? You know the skeptics. They always say, well, prove it. I want to see it. Or I'm not believing it. Okay, well, that's going to be a problem for you because the Lord wants you to believe him. That's what he's looking for. Verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, 
even the salvation of your souls. Let me explain this to you real quickly. Because a saved man is a trinity, just like God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. A saved man is body, soul, and spirit, right? A lost man has his human spirit is dead. We're dead in trespasses and sins. So a lost man is not a trinity. He's just a body and a soul. So you have the physical side and the non-physical side, but the spirit is the thing that connects with God. So a, a saved man is a trinity just like God, body, soul, and spirit. And when you prayed to receive Jesus Christ as your savior, the only part of you that was fully regenerated was your spirit. Your spirit was given new life, and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of your spirit, and the Holy Spirit in you that seals you unto the day of the redemption of the purchased possession is constantly and forever drawing you to make the right choices and to live holy. But the day that I got saved, the day that you got saved, you got the same body, and the body is the place where the flesh lives, and the flesh is the enemy of God, and the flesh is the thing that always draws you to do sinful things and to do the wrong things. And your soul, well, your soul is the real you on the inside, looking out the eye holes. I mean, the soul is the thing that's going to live forever. Your body's going to perish, but your soul's going to live on. The soul is the decision maker in between the body and the spirit. So the little kid's cartoon with the angel on a shoulder and a devil on a shoulder, that's kind of a picture of a Christian. And the guy in the middle has to make the decision, which guy is he going to listen to? Are you going to listen to what the Spirit says? Or are you going to listen to what the world and your flesh say? Well, here it says, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your, not spirit, that's already done, the salvation of your souls. Because you see, your body is going to receive its salvation at the rapture of the church when you get a brand new body. Well, once that happens... What's going to happen is, is that now your soul, I mean, all you've got is a holy body and a holy spirit, and your soul only can pick holy. It's, it's outstanding. So that's all going to come to fruition when? At the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we, when we see him at his appearing. That's the rapture of the church. So all these things are going to come, and it's going to be over. So let me say it this way for you today, your eternal salvation today is secure but it's not complete. It's not complete. There are still two parts of you. Oh, it, your ticket is punched. You're good to go, okay? But it hasn't happened yet. So your eternal salvation is secure, absolutely. But there's still stuff that's going to come about the salvation of your body and of your soul at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So the purpose of suffering, right? It's the refining process. God works in you more and more. He humbles you, right? He works all things together for good to refine your soul, the decision-making factor. Think about it. How often do people suffer because of their own bad decisions, right? And we'll get to that when we get later in 1 Peter. But man, if you can refine your decision-making process... So you make fewer and fewer and fewer bad decisions? I'm not saying suffering ceases. It does not. But you begin to recognize, hey, wait a minute. There's a greater purpose in this. And let's talk about that for just a second. Our last point, the picture of service. Verses 10 through 12. Of which salvation, the salvation we've just been describing, the prophets from the Old Testament, right, have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come 
unto you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Let me just keep pointing out suffering glory, suffering glory, all the way through, right? Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven which things the angels desire to look into. So here we have the Old Testament prophets and they project a picture for us about how we ought to live. Check it out. The Old Testament, the prophets would receive God's word frequently audibly from God. We'd get it written now, okay? But they received God's word and they would relay it to the people, okay? They were preachers. Oftentimes, they were given prophecies of things that they themselves at that time did not fully understand. So of what salvation, it says, the prophets inquired and searched diligently. Okay, God, you're talking about something. I don't really know what you're talking about. It doesn't really matter. Say it anyway. That's kind of how it was for them in a lot of cases. And in verse 11, it says, they prophesied of the sufferings of Christ. That's the first coming. And, and of the glory that should follow. Oh, that's Christ's second coming, by the way. What they didn't understand was that in between the first coming and the second coming, there's this thing called the church age. But, for example, in Isaiah 53, a lot of you are familiar with it, right? Verses 4 and 5, the great prophecy of Christ on the cross. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Sounds like the sufferings of Christ, right? But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. That's grace. That's God's grace. That's what he's talking about in verse number 10, right? The grace that should come unto you because of the crucified Lord that offers you free salvation. Isaiah 53, 10, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. That, that's the gospel. And he talks about the glory that should follow. Well, that's really jumping over the church age and looking at what we talked about last week, the kingdom age, the millennial kingdom. Okay, so the Old Testament prophets typically saw those two events together, not separated. And so there was some things they couldn't see about the church. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, talking about the crucifixion and Christ humbling himself to the, the death of the cross. It says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the sufferings and the glory as it's played out. And it says that this came to these prophets in verse number 11 by the Spirit of Christ which was in them. Now, just as a sidebar for those of you that are Bible students and you want to know, a lot of times people want to say that before Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit of God did not indwell believers in the Old Testament. They would say, for example, the Holy Spirit rested on believers, but he did not dwell in believers. Well, not according to 1 Peter, it's not true. According to 1 Peter, it says the Holy Spirit which was in them did testify. And there are some references that you could go to in the Old Testament, but in your notes I just put this. The Holy Spirit was in believers in the Old Testament, just not, not just on them, 
But there is a difference. Because although he was in believers in the Old Testament, he did not seal them with eternal security, like we saw in Ephesians 1.13. Sealed unto the day of redemption. Because the Holy Spirit did, on occasion, come and go. But he indwelt believers. So in the Old Testament, the salvation that they had could have been lost because they did not have this guarantee of the security that God would keep it forever. That enters into the whole system of Old Testament sacrifices and dispensations if you were with us in our conference. Back to 1 Peter, verse number 12. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. So literally, God revealed the coming of Jesus to the prophets. But we are the ones who benefit from what they wrote, right? So God literally spoke to them. They spoke to the people. It was recorded in Scripture. But we are the benefactors. We are the audience that actually benefits from what they went through, okay? So this is the, this is the picture of service. The prophet's life is a picture of how God used them to serve us. Now, practically or devotionally, I want you to think about this, and this will be the last thing we'll look at and we'll wrap it up today. If you read through the prophets, if you read through your Bible regularly and systematically, you read through the prophets, you will have noticed that those guys had a tough life. Those guys had to step up and do some things that God told them to do that, well, quite frankly, seem kind of odd, right? So you know the story of the prophet Hosea, right? Hosea was told by God to marry a woman who was a prostitute. And God did it so that Hosea would live this miserable life and live a physical example in the full sight of Israel of this terrible woman who would keep ditching him and running out with other men. And Hosea was to keep loving her and keep drawing her back, and she would keep cheating on him. And when all that miserable stuff happened to Hosea, God gave Hosea the message to tell Israel, yeah, you're like that prostitute wife to me, your husband, God the Father. And you keep prostituting yourself by following idolatrous gods. Okay, all I'm saying is, Hosea lived this life, okay? It was awful. Isaiah had to walk around naked for three years and preach naked. That's what the Bible says. Why would that happen? Because it's a shame. It's shameful. What an idiot. What are you doing? You look stupid. Well, God's message to Israel is, that's how you look to me. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You have no covering of righteousness on you. But Isaiah literally had to do that. Jeremiah. This is crazy, y'all. If this wasn't the Bible, I'd never say this on Sunday morning. Jeremiah was told to get him some linen drawers, right? And, and don't wash them. And when they get good and dirty, take off your drawers and stick them in a hole in a rock. And then after a bunch of days, go back and pick your drawers up out of the rock and then notice how nasty they are. Then preach to Israel, like these nasty, dirty drawers. Okay, that sounds gross. Go back and read Jeremiah. I mean, it's in there. Okay, so, I mean, the prophets had some tough stuff that they had to live through because God wanted to use it for the benefit of others. You you tracking with this? They suffered. 
not because of anything they did. They suffered so that we could benefit from it. So this is the last point in your notes. Has it ever occurred to you that maybe you suffer not because of anything you've done, but simply so that others might benefit from your experience? That's going to be one of the messages God wants to get through to you in this book. Listen, sometimes you can, look, you can act foolishly and suffer for that. Okay, but that's not what we're talking about. Sometimes you may be doing just fine, and it seems like your world's crumbling around you. Sometimes you may be doing very well, and God knows it. In fact, he knows it so well that he knows that you have the strength necessary to endure it. And he knows that there's people around you that need to watch you handle it well. And you're thinking, I don't want that job. No, of course, none of us want that job. But I remember reading somewhere in the Bible where our life is not our own. We're bought with a price. That we glorify God in our body and in our spirit, which are God's, by the way. So, you know, it's kind of none of our business. We can't be like the disciple that said, no, Lord. That's a contradiction in terms. If he's your Lord, you can't say no. He's the boss. He calls the shots. And at the end of the day, if you keep your right perspective and you walk through it trusting him, well, man, he's put on display. And we say that's what we want. It's what he wants. So you meet somebody on the street at the shopping mall and you haven't seen them in a while and they say, hey, man, how's it going? And you say, you know, you're going through a tough time and so you say, okay, under the circumstances. And that, you know, that means that circumstances aren't so good. God wants to tell you that when your response might be, okay, under the circumstances, get out from under those things. Get up, man. Quit living under the circumstances. Why are you living under the circumstances? Rise above the circumstances. Don't live your life that way. Love him anyway, even though you don't see him. Trust him anyway, even though you can't see him. Rejoice in him anyway, because he's got your back. Because you have a promise of glory, and you have a purpose of suffering, and you have a picture of service. And he wants to use you to help other people. I mean, what else is our life good for anyway? So we're going to learn a lot of stuff together. But man, if the Lord is working on your heart, maybe the, maybe the invitation for you today is just simply this. Have faith. Don't let go. Trust him. You may be in a tunnel, and you may not be sure where the light is at the end yet. But trust him anyway. He will guide you through this. This is his promise. And you can know it for a fact. Let's all pray together.